U.S. Capitol Police Officer Caroline Edwards reported for duty on January 6, 2021, along with her colleagues, with little warning about the clear and present danger of extreme violence and the potential use of firearms from the angry pro-Trump mob descending on the Capitol that morning. Edwards is believed to be the first law enforcement officer injured by the rioters that morning as she attempted to protect the west front of the Capitol. I stood in between two bike racks and I grabbed one in each arm and I just held on with everything I had. I had three different guys grabbing the bike rack and pushing against me. I knew that I couldn't hold on, but I was just trying to make sure that we got enough uh, backup officers to come and just trying to hold them back as, as much as possible to give people time to uh, come to the West Front. And I feel the bike rack coming up above my head and kind of crashing down on my head and pushing me backwards. And I remember stumbling backwards and uh, hitting my chin on the handrail. And that's when I blacked out. But as I fell where I landed, I hit, hit the corner of the stair with the back of my head. Hello, everyone. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Despite being knocked unconscious, suffering from a concussion, and getting bear sprayed and pepper sprayed, Edwards recovered enough to rush back to the aid of her fellow officers who were in grave danger from the violent crowd. I'm so delighted to welcome Officer Caroline Edwards of the U.S. Capitol Police's first responder unit today to tell her story of what happened on January 6th and its aftermath. Officer Edwards, welcome to When It Mattered. Thank you, Chitra. I'm really uh, excited to be here. So it's been widely reported that U.S. Capitol Police leaders had received clear warnings of a quote-unquote strong potential for violence on January 6th, you know, something they've also acknowledged publicly. And the police union has been quoted as saying it was, quote, unconscionable that the officers, including yourself, weren't better prepared for what turned out to be such a brutal assault. What were you prepared for that morning? What level of threat and violence were you told to expect? And then we can talk about what you actually saw. That morning, we were told very little about what to expect. I'm not sure that anyone, you know, from our lieutenants down had really any clue as to what to expect as far as the violence level. We treated it sort of like the last two Trump marches that we had dealt with, which had resulted in skirmishes between protesters and counter-protesters. So that's what we were really looking for is violence between those two groups. We weren't necessarily looking for um, a riot against ourselves or against Congress. And I think that that's kind of what law enforcement does is they fall back on you know, their training, they fall back on previous experiences. And when you encounter a new experience like that or a new threat, law enforcement can be slow to react. So while you know, we do kind of want to move forward with recognizing these threats now and you know hindsight is completely 2020 when it comes to this i believe i fully believe that myself and the other officers as well as probably leadership i can't speak for them obviously 
they just fell back on their previous experiences with this crowd and what we had dealt with before. And I don't believe that anyone believed that American people would attack their own symbol of democracy, if that makes sense. Yeah, and you said something really interesting that in previous, um, you know, situations, you were never sort of perceived to be the object of interference. And this time it was different, wasn't it? And and you'd never experienced that before. Right. I had been the object of the anger before, you know, such as during um, the Black Lives Matter marches, they were they were very angry towards police officers at some points. You know, when usually when we have First Amendment events, we have a group of people who want to make their voices heard. Some of them are angry at Congress. Some of them are angry at us. But the violence level is very uh, limited. And it was the first time I had dealt with just being in the way. I mean, you know, Black Lives Matter, they were kind of pointing their anger at us, but January 6th rioters wanted to get through us to Congress. And I think that was the threat that was not made clear was that they, we were just in their way. They wanted, they wanted through us no matter using no matter what means um, they could to get around us, um, which was a very scary thing to realize is they're not after me, they're just trying to get through me. And I am very, very convinced that if you know they, they couldn't have gotten through us, they would have started killing. And and even though there were there was a lot of intelligence to the effect that there was going to be violence in the lead up after the elections in November, you and your colleagues really didn't read or absorb some of that, right? Because you were just you were just working all the time. Right. I mean, you know, as any officer, soldier in the military can attest to. You, you get your marching orders, um, despite, you know, the media and social media can get things very wrong and can sort of elevate things when they're not necessarily going to be elevated or, you know, there, there are a lot of empty threats on social media. We, the Capitol gets threats every single day. So, we really don't read into those. Um, and I, by we, I mean the officers with the boots on the ground. I can't, again, I can't speak for the higher officials or you know the people who are dealing with these threats, but we as officers, you know, we hear about threats every day and it's like, we have to continue to do our job until told otherwise. So, that day or that whole period of time, you know, we were working 12 hour days, we were on alert, but we weren't necessarily, it wasn't understood what we were on alert for. Um, 
why we were working these these hours in order to um, protect the Capitol, we weren't under we weren't aware of what the threats possibly were separate from what we were told by our officials, which were, you know, there may be skirmishes between protesters and anti-protesters, like uh, not to point out two groups, but the, the, the names that we heard were Proud Boys, Antifa, you know, make sure that there are no skirmishes between those two, because that's what we had been dealing with before. So that's really what we were focused on threat level wise. We had been alerted to the fact that some of these protesters may come up armed, but we weren't told what they were armed for necessarily. We weren't told that they were armed for an insurrection. So what did you see from your vantage point unfolding on the steps of that Capitol? How would you describe it? Well, when I first, that first moment, um, I would describe the language that started being used as um, it went from, because the past, the past Trump marches, we had been, you know, there had been um, people saying, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. You know, um, kind of just passing us by, not really saying much to us other than, um, you know, thanking us for our service. This was a complete 180. Um, when they came up to us and started talking to us, it was language that vilified us. It was language that started, you know, calling us some of the things that I said in the um, testimony, calling us Nancy Pelosi's dogs, calling us, you know, traitors to our country, started calling us, saying that, uh, mentioning our pay scale, mentioning our paychecks. Um, that was one thing that was interesting to me. They started mentioning our paychecks during the pandemic and said, you never missed a paycheck, did you? Well, of course not. We were first responders during the pandemic. We were um, essential workers, but it was that kind of vilification, continued vilification in order to get the crowd riled up. And I've worked enough of the civil disturbance unit um, events to know that that's what was happening. Um, I've seen it before, and uh, I knew that was what was going on. And that's when I turned to um, my sergeant, and I said my infamous line, um, which a lot of commenters have said was like uh, in Jaws, when they said, um, we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> a lot of people have, uh, I guess, you know, talked about the line when I say, Sarge, I think we're going to need a couple more people down here on the West Front. Um, people have equated that to uh, in Jaws when they're saying we're going to need a bigger boat. And that I, I started laughing at that. That was funny to read. But um, yeah, the classic understatement, right? <laughs> <laughs> the classic understatement of the century. But yeah, I mean, that's when I knew that something wasn't right. 
And so, um, you know, they started breaking down the barriers, which is something that we have rarely seen before. We have rarely seen people come up and usually they are very, um, you know, with, with the bike racks, they are just, they're very respectful of their boundaries. And that's something that we've rarely seen is people just tearing those down <clears throat> and rushing at us. And you were uh, one of uh, 30 officers, you were one of 30 officers, I guess, uh, posted on the west front of the Capitol, and you were suddenly confronting, what, somewhere between 150 and 300 riders. Tell us what happened next. What were you doing, and what did you see happen, and what did you see coming towards you? Well, I saw, I saw very clearly Ryan Samsel turn to Joe Biggs, who is the leader of the Proud Boys, and they started conferring with each other. And that's when they rushed towards us. The crowd started rushing towards us. I remember just grabbing, I grabbed two bike racks. Um, I had one in each arm and I was just holding on with everything because there was only, I was only one of four people on this line and four or five, I'm sorry, there might've been five people on this line. Um, and so I just grabbed two, two bike racks. I stood in between two bike racks and I grabbed one in each arm and I just held on with everything I had. I knew that I could not, I had three, three separate, you know, three different guys grabbing the bike rack and pushing against me. I knew that I couldn't hold on, but I was just trying to make sure that we got enough uh, backup officers to come and just trying to hold them back as, as much as possible to give people time to uh, come to the West Front. And I feel the bike rack coming up above my head and kind of crashing down on my head and pushing me backwards. And I remember stumbling backwards and uh, hitting my chin on the handrail. And that's when I blacked out um, but as I fell where I landed, I hit, hit the corner of the stair with, um, the back of my head. And so, you know, I was obviously, I was blacked out. I woke up on my feet with another officer saying, we, we have to go, we have to go. And I can remember my brain clicking on at that point. And I just see all these people rushing towards the inaugural stage. And I just started running. I started running towards the, the stage and trying to like push people back, just keep people back. I, you know, I just remember grabbing a, my can of pepper spray out of, out of my belt and holding it in my hand just, you know, not knowing what they were going to do next. And some people were trying to tell me, they're like, just get out of our way. We're not going to hurt you. And I started, I just started yelling back. You already did. You already did hurt me. Cause I had not, I did not know at that point that I had really blacked out. I, I remember hitting my chin and that's the last thing I remembered. So I kind of just thought that I busted my chin and everything was fine. You know, cause at that point you're not, um, 
you're kind of woozy, but uh, adrenaline was kicking in and I was, I was fully aware of what was going on at this point. And I just saw all these people pushing towards me and they, they cornered about me and six others on the Senate side stairs. And we um, were holding those Senate side stairs and we'd have scuffles with people. Um, you know, we were fighting with people there. And while I was there, I saw very clearly, I saw men who were, who had walkie talkies. They came prepared with, um, with wipes to wipe out pepper spray out of their eyes. So they had come prepared to be, to be pepper sprayed by the police. They had come prepared with walkie talkies to talk to each other. They had come and I heard them say something like uh, one of them said, should we push forward? And they said, no, wait for more, they are coming. And I remember feeling dread in the pit of my stomach when I heard him say that. And I, you know, I, cause I thought how many more are coming? What's going to happen? What are they doing? What's their goal here? So I was on those Senate stairs for about, I would say 30 minutes and MPD came and pushed the line back. And that's when I fell behind MPD's line. And when I looked out, um, because my view had been blocked of the rest of the West Front by the Senate side stairs. When I looked out, I just, I, you know, I'd kind of, I, I talked about it in the, um, in my testimony. I just saw a war scene and I just remembered my breath just catching in my throat because I had never seen anything like this before. It was all out madness. It was, it was all out battle scene. I mean, officers were falling out left and right. I, you know, I saw, unfortunately, I, I saw officers performing CPR on someone who had collapsed. I saw, um, you know, and, and later I believe that person did eventually uh, end up passing away. I, I saw just people with blood on their faces, people with shrapnel in their arms, people with, you know, gouged out, like gouged faces and missing, you know, their fingers and their hands were all cut up and bloody. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I saw the gambit. I, I just saw so many things that I would never thought that I would see. And, and I mean, there were, there were a mass amount of Capitol Police and MPD officers fighting. They had all rushed to the West Front, which actually left the East Front incredibly vulnerable. And that's when rioters started attacking on the East Front with the limited people that we had there because everybody had west, rushed to the West Front when they heard my officer down call. Somebody had called officer down, which was for me, and a bunch of people had rushed there. 
And that's the other time when you saw how organized it was, because when people saw the officers rushing from the East Front over to the West Front to help you, they then surrounded the East Front and were able to surround the Capitol. So you saw an organized effort happening around the situation, you know, that you were facing. Yes. And um, there's a video of people opening, uh, officers opening bike racks on the East Front. Um, that has been widely misconstrued as officers letting people in. It's actually what happened was they, uh, the rioters trapped some officers on the other side of the bike racks on the east front. And the other officers ripped open the bike racks to allow the officers that were trapped in the crowd to then, and then they retreated towards the building. So they started retreating towards the building to make sure that we didn't have officers who were trapped on the other side of these bike racks. And they were motioning to the officers like, come on, come on. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're retreating towards the building, but it looks like from the vantage point, it looks like an officer is letting people um, in. And that's like that famous clip that a lot of people misconstrue, but yeah, they started attacking the East front and left them completely vulnerable. Now, in addition to landing on, on your head, hitting your chin, get passing out, then hitting your head, then you come to and you're running to the steps, but then you also at some point get pepper spray, you get bear spray in your eyes, and, and but then you end up getting up again and helping your fellow officers. So tell me that sequence. Yeah, so, so after I fell behind MPD's line, I started that's when I started kind of helping officers and I started medically treating officers. I was, uh, I was doing everything, you know, I was uh, decontaminating them. I was helping them get their gas mask on. I was helping um, cause I was left without my riot gear. I'm riot trained, um, but I was left without my riot gear. So I was helping other people put their riot gear on so they could fall on, you know, into the line. Um, and then I was, you know, medically treating other officers, you know, helping them get off the West front when they're too, when they were too, uh, battered to continue. Um, I was actually pulling people off the line who had blood on their faces and I was like, get in the building. And they were, you know, fighting me. I was like, no, get in the building. You're bleeding. And so, you know, I was, I was trying to, you know, I was helping people do that. And then that's when I saw on the house side, um, the house side of the steps on the West front, I saw there were not many people on that line. So I ran over to that line and that's where, you know, I was uh, getting repeatedly exposed to pepper spray in the air, whether it was from officers spraying people or protesters spraying it at officers. Um, you know, there was just a, a mass amount of pepper spray in the air. But when I got sprayed by bear spray was when I saw Officer Sicknick. Brian Sicknick. Brian Sicknick to the left of me. He was to the left of me. He put his head in his hands and I watched him go extremely pale. And that was alarming to me because I knew he had gotten sprayed by some kind of spray, but I was like, but he went, he went pale, which is not natural for somebody to do. 
and I fully believe that's when, you know, his medical issues and is when, when in that instance, but, you know, I turned towards the crowd to see what had hit him. And that's when I got sprayed and it felt like somebody had taken like a metal pole and just gouged my eyes out. I mean, this pain and the stream was so pressurized. I think that's what hurt. The bear spray itself was excruciating, but the stream was so pressurized because it's meant to spray a bear from like 20 feet away. And I, this protester was maybe 10 or five to 10 feet away. And he got me right in the eye. So the pressurized stream was excruciating. And I just remember trying in vain to open my eyes because I could hear the fight behind me um, and I couldn't. And, uh, you know, officers grabbed me and were getting me off of the West Front and that, you know, and they were about to decontaminate me, like, um, you know, get some more water on my face. And that's when we were hit with tear gas. So I had bear spray on my eyes and then tear gas now in my lungs. And I just remember, I, I just, I was trying to throw up. I was trying to something, I just couldn't breathe. I, you know, I, and thankfully our hazardous materials team was there with oxygen because I went, you know, I started having like an asthma episode. I couldn't breathe. Like I just, I could not breathe at all um, with those two, with that mix of chemicals on my face. You know, you talk about Officer Sicknick and as we know, um, he subsequently died um, and they say from natural causes, I think he had several strokes, but clearly the, it was a massive strain on him, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, and he was just, he was, uh, you know, obviously, tragically, he passed away. You also had um, one other Capitol Police officer, one DC police officer, who both died by suicide after the attack. And uh, I know the news reports um, say that at least 140 officers, including yourself, were injured that morning, that day. That's a huge toll, right? And the injuries that were described, you know, head injuries from lack of helmets, cracked ribs, smashed spinal discs, officers stabbed with metal fence stake, concussions from blows to the head, from metal poles ripped from the inauguration scaffolding of all things, you know, also hit with an American flag, swollen ankles, swollen wrists, bruises, irritated lungs from the bear spray and pepper spray. When you look at that toll on your colleagues and on you, what comes to your mind, your thoughts and emotions? And in that moment, did you feel like your life was potentially over? Oh, absolutely. I did not think at all that I was going to go home that night. I had pretty much, from the time that I was on the Senate steps, and I was fighting and there were six of us and the crowd was closing in, I had pretty much told myself that I was probably gonna die today. And I, I just didn't even stop to think about it. I was like, it, it's going, you know, I don't think I'm going home tonight, so I'm just going to give it my all. And I think when people say, 
to me when people say, you know, Sicknick died of natural causes. Of course, you know, I, I, I trust what the medical examiner says and the medical examiner did come back and say that everything that um, transpired on the 6th had sped up his condition and had something to do with his death. Um, but I fully believe that Officer Sicknick gave every single last breath that he had in his body to the cause. And we were all willing to do the same. And I think that is more important to me, um, you know, to quote, off quote, General Patton, um, it doesn't matter to me how he died, but it was how he lived that day. And what he did with the rest of the life in his body. And we were all prepared to do the same. I mean, all of us were fighting, believing that we would not go home that day. You know, it's all the more remarkable, the position that you were in, because you've always wanted to be a police officer, always wanted to be in policing. But the one thing that actually held you back for a long time from joining policing was your concern that you might not have the physical stamina or whatever, what, what it would take to be a police officer, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're a, you know, five foot four female, nobody really looks at you and you're like, they're like, hey, you look like you could be a police officer, sign, you know, sign up. And I, and I always felt that I was not physically capable of being a police officer. And not only that, but I didn't know if I had the mental fortitude in order to do it. Um, but I knew that it was something that I really wanted to do. And so I finally said, I'm not getting at 27 years old. I said, I'm not getting any younger and I'm gonna go for it. And I'm so glad that I did and if there's any blessing that comes from the six, it taught me that I do have the mental fortitude. I do have the physical stamina. And I believe that anyone who thinks that they can't physically become a police officer because they're too small or they're too, they have some kind of temperament, it really takes all kinds of kinds. And you will surprise yourself when something like this happens. And you almost you almost quit at one point in training, right? But and and there were, you had a little trick that kept you going. <laughs> I did, I did. Um, yeah, another recruit kept telling me, "Well, just give it a day, and if by the end of the day you want to quit, then quit, and give it a week, and if by the end of the week you want to quit, then quit, and then after that week it would be, and that's kind of." It, it's helped me to realize that if I just stick with something, if I just show up, that's half the battle, right? Is showing up and, you know, and making it through. But it really is, you, you can do all sorts of things that you really think that you weren't capable of doing. And just by showing up, you prove that to yourself. Yeah, Woody Allen, I think, said something to the effect that 80% of success in life is just showing up. And I think you actually proved that. Absolutely. 
Now, why did you want to be a police officer? What was driving you so much? In fact, for those years that you weren't in policing and you were trying to have a career in marketing, uh, you were pretty unhappy. So what was that compelling force that made you want to be a police officer? I think I was always so moved by my two grandfathers. Um, one of them was a World War II soldier. And then one of them I mentioned in my testimony fought in the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir in the Korean War. And their duty, the honor that they brought to the service and when they would talk about what they did. Now, one, one grandfather, um, the one who fought in the Chosen Reservoir, he did not talk about what he went through as much. But I know that both of my grandparents, both of my grandfathers felt honored to do their duty in the military and in the service to their country. And that had always stuck with me was this calling to a higher purpose. And they had lived by that. They had lived by this calling to a higher purpose of serving their country and serving other people. And I always wanted that in my life. And I could never find that in my corporate jobs. I could never find that satisfaction of helping other people of doing my duty to my country. And I found that wholeheartedly in Capitol Police, um, which I'm very glad I, I applied to a bunch of different places and they were the first ones to call back. And I'm very glad they did um, because I found this higher purpose of defending democracy in everything I do. And, you know, I always, I always tell the younger officers, sometimes we have posts, we have like, we're placed at posts that seem like utter nonsense. You know, you're at a barricade lowering, you know, pushing a button <laughs> to lower, you know, a barricade arm, or you're standing at a locked door, or you're, you know, you're out in the freezing cold and there's no one around and you're just standing there out in the cold. But what you're actually doing is by every single piece of the puzzle, you're defending democracy every single day. And I, that's so important to find that and to recognize that um, and to continue doing your duty to the best of your ability even though it may seem like you're not doing much, just helping them find their purpose through their job. So I wanna ask you two related questions. Given your sense of patriotism, putting duty, God and country first, um, looking at those armed insurrectionists, you know, descending on the Capitol, you know, looking at you like, get out of our way, you are in our way between what us and violence, you know, and subverting democracy. How do you feel about those people? Do you feel a sense of disappointment, anger? I mean, how how do you even reconcile, as you said, that they are were coming to subvert democracy, American citizens? At first, I felt 
an extreme amount of anger towards them. And some of the things that they were telling me and saying to me, you know, calling me a traitor, you know, saying that I was, I was going against my oath. I honestly, and it's, it's going to sound like a line, it's going to sound fake, but I really have found it in my heart to forgive them. And I can only say that, you know, that is due to my religious beliefs, um, my belief in God that I, I am able to forgive them, but I believe that they thought that they were doing what was best for the country according to what had been told to them. And that's hard for me to reconcile because some of these, some of these military guys, some of these officers believed that they were doing their duty. And that's hard for me to reconcile because they, they thought they were, they were serving a higher purpose that day. It's hard, it was hard for me to understand that. It's still hard for me to understand how someone, you know, without getting political, without getting whatever, how someone could use that sense of duty, that sense of higher purpose and twist it into something so ugly. Um, that makes me very, very sad. You know, I, I really, I really, do, I really do think that a lot of the people who showed up thought that they were answering a calling. Um, I don't, I don't think that a lot of them showed up just to, you know, just to wreak havoc. But, but that's more dangerous. I, I would almost welcome people who are just there to promote chaos other than there were people whose sense of duty had become twisted into and, and had that had it used against them. And that's what makes me sad above all else. And then the question of the then President Donald Trump as well, you know, you, as you've heard from the committee testimony over the last few weeks, um, the reports that Trump even wanted the Secret Service to remove the magnetometers to allow more of his followers to attend the rally and speech, even though he knew they were armed to the teeth and that he was even fighting to walk across the cap to the Capitol with these armed insurrectionists because, as he put it, you know, they aren't they don't have anything against me, he said. But the fact is they, they were armed and they came to do great harm and they did do great harm. And then of course, the length of time it took and the arm twisting it took to, to force the president, then president, to tell the rioters to go home, by which time enormous damage had been done, including to officers like yourself, Officer Sicknick, hundreds of officers, Metropolitan Police officers, Capitol Police who were hurt. Uh, you know, uh, the danger that Mike Pence was in, danger that other members of Congress were in, given the sense of patriotism, your, your sense of duty, this idea that a sitting president of the United States would go for something like that, you know, seeing the noose hanging for Vice President Pence. Have you reconciled yourself to all of those details as they've unfolded? 
I, I will give the caveat that I do not speak for all of Capitol Police or for Capitol Police um, in general, but I can honestly say that I think it's going to take a very long time for me to process everything that the, the January 6th committee has come up with. I think that it's going to, it's going to take me, you know, I, I'm interested to see, you know, where their evidence continues to take them. Um, I'm interested to see what, what happens after, but, you know, at the same time, I have to continue to do my duty. And I have to continue to work knowing that, that there are some people who may have supported what happened on January 6th that I am protecting and I am still willing to give my life up for them because they are America's elected leaders and whoever the elected leader may be, I'm still going to have to um, put my feelings aside and put any anger aside that I have and protect them to the best of my ability. And that's what I'm just going to have to continue to do. On a personal level, um, I can tell you that, you know, I honestly, I, I can't even fathom what is coming out of the January 6th committee findings. It's, it's incredible, but, you know, on a professional level, I will continue to just protect and serve to the best of my ability. And, um, you know, we, that's the officer's daily dilemma is putting, you know, you, you have to do that in order to be an effective police officer is put your feelings aside and continue to serve, protect and serve to the best of your ability. Do you intend and want to remain on the force despite everything that happened to you and seeing what happened that day? I mean, one wouldn't blame you at all for wanting to walk away from policing for good, or does it still seem as worthwhile as it seemed, what, six years ago when you were really longing to to be in policing? It does. It's even more worthwhile now. Um, it means even more to me. You know, I've always, I've always believed that you should be the change that you want to see in the world. And if you want to see, you know, advancements in policing further, if you want to see police officers become more, um, you know, empathetic or, you know, whatever, it, it starts with you. And I believe that I'm just trying to I'm, I'm back on the force. I'm back in uniform. Um, I'm out there every day because I really do believe that it's important for me to be there. And, you know, should something else come up, I'll, I'll be out there again. It's, um, you know, I, I believe it's important. And I believe that hopefully it sends a message that maybe even to the elected leaders that what they do 
is important enough for me to put aside my uh, my fears and put aside to have worked so hard. I mean, 18 months ago, I could barely walk um, in a straight line. I could barely talk without stuttering and slurring my words. And I couldn't drive. I couldn't really, there, my reading comprehension was zero. And I, I worked so hard to get back to where I was because I do believe still in democracy. I do still believe in America. And I do still believe that we are a country that is worth me fighting to get back to serve. So hopefully, I mean, that's a message to everyone that at least one person still believes in the democratic process and still believes that in America. What was it like to testify before the January 6th Select Committee? Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, I, I, the Nick Quested, the, the filmmaker turned to me and was like, would you rather be fighting an insurrection right now? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I would. Um, it was, you know, it, I was, I felt like a fish out of water. Um, there were several times I looked around and I, I couldn't believe that I was there. But it also gave me strength. It was like, I felt like I had finally completely healed as a human being. And that I had finally found my voice to be able to tell people what happened and what I went through. And that was my final act of fighting on January 6th. You know, I didn't, because of my injury, I didn't stay, I, you know, I was put in an ambulance at 5.30 at night and they didn't clear the building until 6.30 or seven. And so I, did, I didn't get to stay to clear the building and I didn't get to stay the whole time to fight um, because of my injury. But this was my last final act of continuing to fight back and to find justice for so many officers that were injured and so many officers who have been hearing the message that what they went through wasn't that bad or you know it wasn't it wasn't a big deal it was a big deal there were mpd officers local police officers who told me that they had been stabbed and shot at and january 6th was the worst days of their lives and that's a big deal. This is not something that was just another protest or just another riot. This was an all out battle. And um, I, I hope that officers understand that and understand that what they did that day was monumental, it was historical, and it will be remembered. Have you and your colleagues and the union had have you have you had a you know pardon the expression but like a come to Jesus moment with your the leaders of the Capitol Police a moment of reckoning where you've said 
look, you guys let us down. You know, we didn't have the intelligence. You know, we didn't have the equipment. We weren't prepared. And had they looked you in the eye and said, yes, we agree, and we're going to make sure it doesn't happen again, how, how will you and your colleagues ensure that you are not the sitting ducks that you were on January 6th? Um, I think upper officials would probably tell you that they've had many come to Jesus moments. They continue to have come to Jesus moments with officers. I think if anything good has come from the six, as far as the department, it's opened the lines of communication between the officers and upper management. And it's kind of opened their eyes to what we've been dealing with. And I really feel that I, I see change happening. It, it is, of course, happening at the speed of the federal government. Um, but it is happening. And I do believe that upper management is trying to become a better police force. What that looks like and you know how it'll change us entirely only time will tell um but you know i mean there's not a single person on the department newer or older that wasn't affected by what happened on january 6th and the department will continue to live with january 6th on its back for the rest of i mean eternity as long as there is a department um so, you know, we, ha we have had many, I think every meeting officers speak up and their voices are heard. And I think that every single time we see, you know, a little bit of change happen for the better. And, um, you know, and sometimes, you know, because of, uh, you know, because of circumstances, I mean, the department is very, very different, but, you know, hopefully they'll continue to take the officer's perspective and continue to change. Caroline, looking back on that young woman who wanted to get into policing but felt like she didn't have what it took to do it, but in the end couldn't resist the draw, looking back at that trainee who almost gave up but decided to take it a day at a time, a week at a time, a month at a time, at the officer on January 6th who clung to two bike racks and pushed back at an angry mob and then injured, rushed to help colleagues, even though you were blinded by pepper spray and bear spray. Um, and the officer who has now returned back to active duty, what would you say to that young woman about that journey that you've been on? I would just say, you're gonna find who you really are. You're gonna find out who you really are. Um, and to just keep digging. And I, I think that I would, I would say that to most females who are trying to make it in male-dominated uh, fields is you're going to really find out who you are and you're going to find out that not only did you have it in you all along but you can be strong you can be 
heroic. You can be whatever while still being yourself. Um, I, I try to emphasize that to younger officers who are females. You, you don't have to be you know, masculine. You don't have to be, I mean, if you are, you are, that's great. But like, you don't, you, you can be exactly who you are and be a police officer. You don't have to change the person that you are in order to become a police officer, in order to become a soldier, in order to become, you just have to find your strength. And I think that through January 6th, I've been able to balance that, like, here's who I am, but who I am is also a lot stronger than I gave myself credit for. And if there's any blessing throughout my experience, I think it's been that is finding out just how tough I am. <laughs> well, Caroline, thank you so much for joining me on When It Mattered and for this fascinating and very inspiring conversation. Well, thank you, Chitra, so much for having me. Um, it's it's meant so much to be included among the uh, amazing people that you've had on your podcast. And uh, hopefully someone listens and uh, someone is inspired to become a police officer. They can do it, I promise. Officer Caroline Edwards is a member of the U.S. Capitol Police's first responder unit. She is believed to be the first law enforcement officer injured by the rioters on January 6th as she attempted to protect the west front of the Capitol. And despite being knocked unconscious, suffering from a major concussion from being pushed backwards onto the concrete steps by the surging mob, Edwards recovered enough to help her fellow colleagues who, like her, were being sprayed with bear spray and pepper spray as they fought to contain the violent crowd. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.